like all the way at the bottom or something? It's on the way to the bottom, so. Not my home. It's the it's the the theater that used to be the library theater in the I don't know the corner house. Oh yeah, um, we record the interview in the bowels of the corner house, which uh, is not, has now been taken over by MMU. I think most people think it's closed, but it hasn't. Uh, so I don't know what they used this room for back when it was you know the cool corner house. But it's now basically a little storage cupboard with bars on it, and it's well freaky. But the sound is excellent. Uh, if I've learned anything from this conversation, technically, it's that small rooms are amazing. But the, because it's so small, it meant we had to be quite close to each other, which is not easy for me. Um, being close to other humans... <laughs> I don't think it's that easy for him either. But somehow we managed to do a, a coherent and interesting conversation. I am looking at... There are some young people. God, they just looked at me as well. Never mind. Uh, looking down. Uh, young people doing that weird French... What's that? Jumping on stuff. Uh, it starts with a P. Ow! Does it start with a P? I'll figure it out by the end. Um... You know what I mean, that kind of jumping on from building to building thing. But it's like a really shit version of it. They're just basically jumping up and down on the stone park benches. Oh, he's taking a big run up. And bloody hell. I, this must be a beginner's class because it's terrible. Um, I've started getting some people actually asking me to be on the podcast, which is flattering, um, but it seems to be mostly people who live in Austin, Texas, and write erotic fiction. Uh, I don't understand how that they think this is going to work, and they actually they follow about 25,000 people, so I just, I automatically think, you're shit. How can you follow, if you're following 20,000 people on Twitter, you clearly have no interest in what any has to say. I have nothing against erotic fiction, by the way, I hasten to add. And in fact, with Nick, we get into a conversation about his bad sex award, which is quite good. We both talk about um, horror fiction in a strange thing. I didn't really think that would happen. Um, and about how it was kind of a gateway drug for the both of us, really, into writing. Uh, and we talk shamelessly about our shared love of Stephen King. And if there's one thing I've learned from talking to quite a few kind of literary fiction people um, Stephen King is loved a hell of a lot more than the press would have you believe 
uh, and not just because of his storytelling, which is like the most backhanded compliment you could probably give a writer, um, but because he's probably the most readable guy who's ever walked the face of the earth. And frankly, um, this podcast, if it ever gets to a point where I actually get to interview him, I will definitely close the podcast down after that because I, I know that I'd, I've made it. Um, it's Christmas. It, this is my Christmas podcast. Isn't it delightful? Um, Christmas in the UK uh, means floods. The thing I just cannot believe is that it's clearly global warming and they still, the news headlines are still questioning it like it's not been settled yet, which is, it would be infuriating if it wasn't so hilarious. ITV News, after these floods have come out, and I mean these are floods that have not happened in Cumbria ever to this scale, and this is the Lake District which gets more rain than fucking anywhere. Um, people are saying it's global warming, but what is the truth? The truth, mate, is that it is global warming. Like, I mean, it's clearly, it's, it couldn't be more obvious. But anyway, um, I didn't, I really didn't mean for this podcast to be so political. Uh, I'm not talking about Syria and global warming. But I mean, it's called the end of all things. So, you know, what, what did you expect? Cheery Christmas podcast. Yeah, sorry about that. Let's uh, switch gears and talk to the lovely and multi-talented Nicholas Royal about doppelgangers, bad sex, and getting published. It's a small press which publishes only short stories, and it publishes them as standalone volumes with their own little illustrated covers because I think short stories are worth it mm -hmm. worth that little bit of extra effort fuss and expense etc and also I think that some of that I think the reader then gets the impression hmm this short story was worth that extra fuss well, or, or the publisher is saying that let's see if he's right um, I've published a range of people from uh, well like the first two writers that I started with were Michael Marshall Smith and Tom Fletcher. Mike, they're both British writers. Mike lives in the States now. Uh, Tom lives in Cumbria and has probably had a pretty wet weekend. Mm. Actually. Yeah, I know him quite well. Oh, do you? Yeah. Good. Yeah. Excellent. How come? Uh, well, I was. Uh, I used to write for a paper in Nottingham. Uh, the Left Line. Left Line, yes. And um, they, we covered... Uh, Alt fiction. Yeah. I think it oh, was I know, at Derby. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So we, I went there. Right. And um, I, it was my first kind of like roving reporter kind of thing. Because most of the things I wrote were just just uh, essays on being foreign in right. Britain. Yeah. And just comedy, really. Yeah. Um, but this one, I wanted to go to alt fiction. So I just basically said, yeah, can you uh, make this happen? And right. they did. So I went there. And then I got there and realized, oh, shit, now I've got to talk to people. Yeah. Which, you know, I'm not never really done before and uh, just just recognized Tom because I'd looked him up I looked up a few of the yeah. authors before I showed up and just started chatting to him and uh, he was really welcoming yeah he's very nice yeah so him and like his I think his agent and his publisher mm -hmm. were, were there mm -hmm. and just went ended up drinking with them all night brilliant yeah and then we've kept in touch ever since I've been trying to get him on this thing actually but because he's He's lives in, in the Cumbria. sticks, yeah. and he lives on the wrong side as well. Yeah, he does. Yeah, yeah. So it takes a long time to get there. Yeah. Um, 
you know, you get to somewhere like Carlisle and you think, oh, I'm nearly there, but it, it takes mm-hmm. another hour or two from Carlisle. Yeah. Um, so the first two stories were by Mike and Tom, and um, and then I, I don't know, I published Alison Moore, who mm-hmm. um, would later be shortlisted for the Booker Prize, and um, a range of authors, so far all British, and that's not necessarily uh, a um, policy decision, it's just that I know it's going to be a massive pain if I have to career a set of books over to someone in the States, say, uh, to get them to sign them, because they're all signed, they're all numbered and signed. I sell to uh, customers in the States and, and indeed all over the world and people are free to submit material from anywhere in the world and, and everyone has an equal chance. But um, so far there's, there's been nothing from anywhere outside Britain that I've wanted to publish. Mm. Um, I like getting submissions. I don't always manage to read them as quickly as I would like. Sometimes I do. Um, and the stories are all characterised by a sense of the uncanny, by the weird, by the gothic... Um, horror stories really but of a particular type um, I'm not really so interested in blood and guts gory stuff I'm interested in psychological stuff stuff that's ambiguous stuff a story that you might read and you might think well, I don't know what don't really know what this is it's not it's a creepy horror story a bit creepy a mm. bit weird something a bit odd going on maybe it has something in it relating to the specific motifs that Freud uh, described as belonging to the uncanny, right? Um, but not necessarily. Okay, I'll pretend I know what that means. Okay, uh, things <laughs> like <laughs> doppelgangers mm-hmm. and um, things right, okay. like the strange sense of strange sensation of seeing something that looks familiar but is is in fact completely alien, um, or indeed the other way around. Um, the idea that everything is controlled by some kind of weird evil genius, another uh, motif in, in the uncanny. Um, but the, the thing that um, interests me, one of the things anyway that interests me most, most of all from the uncanny is this idea of doppelgangers, doubles. I just love that. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, just a few days ago I saw one of the ticket inspectors on the Metrolink on the tram system in Manchester and I saw her through the window and I thought, oh my God, there's my sister, there's my elder sister who has returned to Manchester and surprisingly got a job checking tickets on (laughs) on the trams. It wasn't her, but it was just so like her. Mm -hmm. And um, I managed to get a picture of her uh, and now I have to decide whether I show it to her or not because because it could could go either way. I've done that myself. I had a friend who... I don't know if I want this on the podcast. (laughs) But it was... Because it was basically... <laughs> a bigger version right. of, and yeah. I made that clear from yeah. the start, and just said, yeah. "This is you." If you packed on a few, yeah. and yeah. he was absolutely mortified. Yeah, exactly. But he was mortified in a British way, where he okay. just sends me a text and he goes, "Oh, right," <laughs> and that was it. And I was like, "Oh, everything's fine." And then I said, then he just wouldn't speak to me for yeah. months. And I'm like, what's the problem? Six months. Yeah. And the next time I saw him, he goes, "Man, I thought you were a dick." I'm like, "What do you mean?" <laughs> yeah. Um, how short is short? Well, for Nightjar, yeah. for Nightjar, the shortest that I've published was, was Tom's latest story. He's done three stories for Nightjar. And the latest one was called The Home and was only about 1,300 words. And it, it gets harder to justify charging £3 for something when it's only 1,300 words when um, 
the longest has been more like 5,300 words, mm-hmm. uh, which was a story by M. John Harrison uh, called Getting Out of There. Um, normally, the average is around about three or 4,000 words. Mm-hmm. Um, and I take... I mean, there's the price thing to take into consideration, but also it costs me more. The longer the story is, the more it costs me to print it. Yeah. Uh, but also... Um, the shorter it is, no, I was trying. No, you the less likely, the, yeah, the less likely it is to be paid. People have paid. Yeah, not, they won't feel like they're getting their money's worth. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there, there is a danger of that. Hmm. And I thought about issuing some kind of caveat or apology um, when publishing the home mm-hmm. by Tom because it's so short. And mm-hmm. then I thought, no, sod it. I'll just publish it as it is with confidence. And, mm-hmm. and um, they've not all gone yet. But then sales have noticeably slowed since the so-called financial downturn of whenever it was. Mm. I don't even know when it was. I started Nightjar in 2009 and the mm-hmm. downturn wasn't long after that. Yep. Um, but uh, sales were definitely quicker to begin with. They've slowed down now. But then, having said that, I don't put very much time or effort into marketing or publicity because I don't have any time to do that. And also, it's just not my natural... Uh, I'm not naturally skilled at that kind of thing. Yeah. So, yeah, the shortest is about 1,300. Okay. Um, ideally, they're more like 2,000. Right. And, and above. Yeah, and you're, you're kind of a believer in less is more. If I know one yes. thing about you, yes. is that. And yes. that. Especially with novels. Yeah, with even. novels and with stories, I do think less is more. I do think that most novels are too long. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of writers on write, creative writing MAs and, and other wannabe writers think that they've they've heard this figure of or these figures of a novel needs to be say 60 to 90,000 words um, that's not the case um, each individual novel needs to be the length that it needs to be it will dictate the length that it needs to be to the writer and they mm-hmm. need to get a sense of that um, I think a lot of people just keep writing and keep writing and pad, pad novels out mm-hmm. and short stories as well but it happens yep. more with novels uh, and one of the things I mean we may come on to talk about salt but one mm-hmm. of the things that I try that I'm actively trying to do at salt is um, champion shorter novels right um, so The Lighthouse by Alison Moore which I mentioned earlier was under 50,000 words and it's just a perfect little novel it doesn't need to be any longer than it is and if it were any longer you'd think Mm-hmm. Oh, there's a bit of padding there it doesn't need to be Yeah. Um, and I can think of loads and loads of novels of 90,000 words or, or, or more or, or even less um, that in my opinion are just too long yeah don't need to be is, there, is, it, is there any reason for there to be say like a 400 page novel well yeah there, there would be stories that demand that that length um, to tell them in mm-hmm. um, I mean I've read I don't read a lot of novels of that length mm-hmm. anymore, but I, I have done in the past. Um, I used to read Stephen King yep. and love his novels. Um, Me too. The but Shining is yeah. a brilliant novel. That's probably 500 pages. Yeah. Um, but um, nowadays, I would really, uh, I'd really have to convince myself that it was worth yeah. getting in that amount of time. Yeah. The first novel I had ever read was It, oh, and it was a thousand. Yeah, I, see, I haven't read that. It's too long. For well, I, I don't think I, I could. I would do it again. Yeah. 
Stephen King can almost almost get away with it, yeah. just because he's so good at telling stories that even though you know it's going nowhere, you don't give a shit yeah. because you're just happy yeah, to read it. Yeah. Um, but I think my when I first realized that Stephen King went too far was when I read The Stand. I bought the book not knowing that it was the extended version. Right. So I mean, it's a long book yeah. to begin with, and then I bought it, took it home, and then basically found out that it, this is the version that Stephen King originally submitted oh, so because he's so pissed off. Yeah, he's right. so pissed off about the edit because he said, right. "Oh, the edits are only because it was thirteen hundred pages." It would I put them back in. I was like, okay, I got halfway through it and I stopped. I, just, oh, really? I cannot read anymore. So it feels too long. Yeah, right. way too long. Well, for right. me anyway. Stephen, um, I don't know if you're listening. Yeah, if <laughs> I'm sure he is. <laughs> um, I okay. So I'm happy to let you've mentioned it already. Yeah. I'm happy to let you dictate this. No, no, no. You go ahead. Right. What? Let's talk about Salt. Then. Okay. So you're an editor. Yeah. For Salt, um, what do they publish, and what do you have to do with it? I went to them because uh, at the time they were mainly known, they were best known as a poetry publisher, but they were also well known for publishing a lot of collections of short stories, mm-hmm. and which made them almost unique. Um, Comma is another, Comma Press is another small publisher that specialises in collections of short stories. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to get them on this bloody thing as well. Well, they, they should do it, they should definitely do it. Um, Ra, are you listening? <laughs> Just say yes. Yeah. <laughs> you too could be in this uh, basement chamber <laughs> recording your podcast. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, Salt used to do collections of stories uh, like Comma did, and like Comma still do. Salt don't do so many of them now. Um, and that's not because I went there and, and said, you've got to stop doing these stories at all. I went there because I had... I'd submitted a novel to them as an agent because I also do a very small amount of agent work. I don't really like it and I'm not very good at it, Mm -hmm. um, as my clients will attest. (laughs) Um, But every now and then I I would take something on. And uh, so, yeah, back then, um, I forget forget exactly what year it was, but I had a novel by a former student of the MA who I had taught. um, His name was Kieran Devaney. And his novel was called Deaf, that's D-E-A-F, at Spiral Park. Mm-hmm. And it was an experimental novel, but it was extremely readable and accessible. And um, I submitted it to Salt, and um, they sat on it for ages and ages, and I frustrated. So in the end, I thought, hang on. Um, I noticed that Salt had a... Another, had one or two imprints. They had a romance imprint, and I think possibly they had a science fiction imprint or a fantasy imprint at that time. Um, so I went to them and said, how about doing um, an experimental fiction imprint and letting me um, be in charge of it? And they said, yes. Mm. Um, and then the following day, it had somehow changed into um, just being me commissioning new novels into their general fiction Right. Um, list. And uh, Kieran's was the first novel that I took them, although it wasn't the first novel that uh, of of mine that they published. Right. Uh, I think possibly that was The Lighthouse. Mm. Um, but I can't quite remember. This is three or four years ago. Yeah. <laughs> uh, four or five years ago. Mm. Um, so uh, I have now 
the Kieran Devaney novel was probably the longest novel that I've taken them because I think it was more like 70,000 words. Right. All of the others have been under 50,000 or around 50,000. And it's not necessarily... Uh, you know, if someone sent me a novel of 60,000 words or 70,000 words and, and it was just superb and I wanted to publish it, then I'd do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I do tend to prefer shorter sure. novels. Um, and they, I have the, um, I have a sort of, I have the luxury there of being able to just take on novels that I want to take on that appeal to me that I really like, um, and so that's what I do. I look for stuff that that um, that appeals to my taste, um, and so anyone who wants to get an idea of what I like, um, there's an obvious way to do that, which is to get some of the books that I've. Uh, commissioned for salt. So Alison Moore's The Lighthouse, Kieran Devaney's Death at Spiral Park, Habit by Stephen McGay, uh, which is being made into a film, mm. very excitingly. Um, Ghost Moon by Ron Butlin. I'm a big admirer of Ron's. It was very exciting. Um, I mean, he's been around for ages and I've read his work um, from other publishers and it was very exciting to become his publisher. Um, trying to remember now uh, this is terrible whenever I have to remember things that's, that's quite alright whenever I know there's a specific list of things <laughs> to remember it goes right out of my mind and of course all my writers now will be thinking why doesn't he mention me why, doesn't he ma- why isn't my name at the front of his <laughs> mind for instance Kerry Hadley Price right. another graduate of the MA at MMU uh, her novel, The Black Country, brilliant novel. Um, Ian, if I don't mention Ian Parkinson, he will give me a very hard time. Beginning so of the I'll end. The beginning of the end by Ian Parkinson. Yeah. Ian Parkinson, I'll just mention his name again. Ian, are you listening? Mm. Um, I know him because he follows me. Does he? Mm. That's great. Ian, yeah. you you must be listening. <laughs> yeah. And plus, because his book's called The Beginning of the End. Yeah. So I'm immediately exactly. sucked right in. Yeah. Um, and I mean, the cover is amazing. And the cover is amazing. Thank you to John Oakey. John is the designer um, that I work with most of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, At Nightjar. Nightjar. Right. He does Nightjar as right. well. Yes. Um, I'm very lucky to have John's services. And, um, yeah, The Beginning of the End is an amazing novel. Mm. Really, really dark and totally compelling. Um, yeah, it's on my shelf. Oh, you've not read it? No, not Treat yet. in store. Oh, great. A very um, dark, bleak treat. Fantastic. <laughs> it's right up my alley. Good. Uh, so, writer, publisher, editor, and MA tutor. Yeah. If, this is a hypothetical question yeah. now, if any one of those things paid enough that you could survive on, yeah. A, would you, which one would it be? Okay. And B, would you want it that way? Good question, and the one that I would have to pick out would be writer. That's the obvious... I mean, it's obvious, Yeah, but. Um, I'd consider myself first and foremost a writer, but it's... it's on its own, doesn't quite uh, pay the bills, and um, I would find it hard to give up... Well, I've already tried to give up Nightjar. tried mm-hmm. once to give it up. I announced I was giving it up... Um, and there was an outcry uh, of people. <laughs> I don't know how you define outcry. Yeah. And how many Clamoring. people need for a, for yeah, an riots in the street? Yeah, <laughs> um, th- 
there was there were enough people saying no 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 you've got to keep doing it that mm. I thought okay no you're right I do have to keep doing it because I do love doing it but it just takes up so much time yeah. and money and uh, I mean it does pay for itself but just only just yeah um, and only just in the long term yeah um, so I really wouldn't want to give up Nitro I wouldn't want to give up the job at MMU being uh, teaching on the MA at MMU I, at Manchester Writing School I love that job and. Um, and it acts as um, fodder for your novels, absolutely. clearly. Uh, fodder for my novels, and for you know, I, I've published three, two or three writers who've come through the MA. Mm-hmm. I've ended up publishing either with Nightjar or with Salt. Yep. Um, so yeah, first novel, my last novel was was very was about a, a man, a, a writer who who works in a university in the northwest of England, unnamed university in mm-hmm. the northwest of England. Um, obviously not set at MMU and, and not featuring any of my colleagues. <laughs> yeah. Clear about that. Yeah. Um, or you. Or me at all, mm-hmm. obviously. Um, so, what would I give up? Would I give up salt? I, again, um, no. Uh, I don't want to give up any of these things. The one thing I would give up is being an agent because right. I really am not very good at that. Yeah. Uh, I'm good at um, the editing part of the agent's job which is increasingly part of the agent's job these days I'm good at that um, and I'm, I'm not bad at, I'm very good at, at championing work and um, giving someone a boost and introducing them to people and all that kind of thing mm-hmm. but I'm no good at I don't know the names and addresses and email addresses yeah. of all the editors yeah. um, well it's I, a sales job isn't it really, yeah it is and I'm not a salesman mm-hmm. um, and the one thing I'm really no good at is hustling yeah. um, and negotiating. If someone says, well, we'll offer you £5,000 for that, I'll say, um, let's, let's shake on that. <laughs> yeah. And obviously you can't do that yeah. because your writer wants you fighting for them, mm-hmm. saying, well, what about £10,000? Mm. Um, no, I'm not comfortable doing that stuff. So I give up the agenting, but uh, I've got a couple of clients who are keen for me to carry on doing it and I'm more than happy to carry on doing it for them but I'm certainly not looking for more clients yeah uh, you mentioned Tom Fletcher mm. before and he said to me before this interview that they call you Springsteen it, has he just made that up or do they do that behind your back because you're because... the boss oh really that's what he said yeah well no I, see I was thinking born to run I do <laughs> yeah. I don't go running but I play football and I'm always late for appointments and mm. um, not always late I mean I'm always running to be on time for them mm. But um, I've never heard Tom. Maybe you just made that up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, maybe it's behind your back. Now you yeah, know. Yeah, that's uh, fine. There could be worse things to yeah. have said of me. Well, I, I said you're the Kevin Bacon of <laughs> Manchester writing, and I said I even said I wasn't sure I was going to tell you that, but uh, just because. I, Why the Kevin Bacon? Well, because I think uh, writing in the UK, you're six degrees of separation from yeah. pretty much every writer yeah. in the UK in a sort of strange way because I've. I, I, I can say at least half a dozen writers I've spoken to have said, oh, yeah, Nicholas Rowe. Right. Which... I, yeah, I'm waiting for you to go on and, and say who they are. Yeah. No, no, oh, no. Yeah. They say... Oh, basically yeah. saying that in a small... Or in a couple of cases, I'm not going to embarrass them yeah. by saying who it was, yeah. that you're responsible for them getting published. Oh, well, that's Basically. Nice. Yeah. And no, it's all positive stuff. Right, good. Yeah. Maybe I shouldn't have mentioned the Kevin Bacon thing. <laughs> I like Kevin Bacon. Yeah. And Kevin Bacon bears an uncanny resemblance to Michael Marshall Smith. Right. Um, my friend and um, author, uh, the, who did the first night job that I mentioned. 
mm-hmm. called What Happens When You Wake in the Night. Mm. Very creepy little story. It's a nice title. Yeah. Um, the other your other your day job, obviously, and we mentioned this already, is as a uh, an MA tutor in the creative writing program. Mm-hmm. Um, my tutor. Yes. Um, do you think that anyone can learn to be a good writer? Mm-hmm. I know that's a tough question. Very and tough I, question. And I, you, you don't have to answer it because I know it's a bit touchy considering it's, you're... <laughs> yeah. It's very difficult to... Um, well, I don't know. Do I think that anyone can be a good writer, can mm-hmm. learn to be a good writer? Yes. Is that the question? Yeah. I think that anyone can learn to be a better writer. Yeah. Um, I think... I do think... I've always thought, and I continue to think, that um, you can either write or you can't in mm-hmm. the way that you can either draw or you can't or paint or you can't um, and then uh, you can be taught or you can learn is perhaps a better way to put it um, to, to be given the tools no um, my, I don't know if I'd think of it as tools maybe um, there are there's a lot of technical stuff that, that you can improve mm-hmm. um, so if, if you make certain mistakes in your writing, you can be shown that those are mistakes and you can ideally stop making them. Yeah. Um, that doesn't make you... That doesn't give you a sort of idiomatic facility with the language. Um, it doesn't turn you into a great storyteller. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't turn you into a great observer of things. Um, I think you've kind of got to have you've got to have something to start with mm-hmm. and then uh, and do you think that's kind of I almost said God given but do you think you're born with it or do you think that you know say it's uh, you've grown up with uh, certain life experiences that kind of make you a better writer I think it's more likely the, the latter right but I, I, but I really don't know mm. um, I mean I grew up Reading, I was a very keen reader, and I grew up reading horror stories. Yeah, um, me too. Reading the Pan Book of Horror Stories and the Fu- Fontana Book of Horror Stories, that those series. Um, and as a result, when I started writing, that's exactly what I started writing horror stories. And yeah. indeed, I was published in the Pan series, mm-hmm. volume 26. And uh, I'm not so you never forget it. that bit, do you? No, never forget <laughs> that. And I also, I never forget the fact that it's not a very good story. And if mm-hmm. I look back now, I think, oh my God, what a terrible story. But I was, it's what I could do at the time, you know, age 21. Yeah. Um, and I was it, it's almost impossibly excited to be published at all. But mm-hmm. in that series, uh, at the age of 21, it was just the most amazing feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were talking about whether you can... Yeah, you can definitely learn to get... I've not had anyone on the MA who wasn't a better writer at the end of their course than they had been at the beginning. Yeah. Um, and um, there have been people who have made really quite astonishing progress. Um, I guess some people are better suited to it, Um to the rigor of an of an MA and to the um, um, to the particular things that we do, uh, mm-hmm. some people are better suited to it than others. Um, How so? Oh, I don't know. Um, some people learn that more. Yeah, easily. yeah. Some people pick up stuff more mm-hmm. easily. Some people are more receptive to the more academic things that yeah. we do as part of the MA. Maybe more interested as well. And more interested, mm-hmm. and maybe some people come on the MA 
and haven't researched it thoroughly and are not expecting all of that academic stuff, although it would have been pointed out to them yeah. at interview stage, but still. I do find that incredible, because I, I noticed that as well. And it's not just this programme, but in other people, they go, oh, wow, this MA is really hard. And they like, yeah. it's a master's degree. What did you think it was going to be? You think exactly. It's... You're not yeah. just writing a book. Yeah. Um, but you are writing a book. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that answers the question. It kind of answers yeah, the question. it does. Um, what are you writing at the moment? I'm writing a sequel of sorts to my last novel. Our last novel was called First Novel, despite being my seventh. Mm-hmm. And I'm writing a sequel to that, only in very loosest terms, mm-hmm. called... Second Novel. Second Album. Oh, right, okay. And But I've been writing it for the past two years mm-hmm. uh, very, very slowly because of that list of things that you uh, mm-hmm. reeled off earlier, the other things that I do... Although writing is the most important thing on that list to me, it's the one that I spend least the the least amount of time doing. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. I think so. I, I love it that I'm telling my yeah. a tutor. It didn't sound <laughs> right. Grammar's right or not? It's the I one think that so. I spend the less time on. The yeah. least time least time. On. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Favorite thing, but the thing you spend the least. Yeah. I think, and is that because the effort to benefit ratio is probably the widest of your... I think it's because I haven't got a contract. Exactly. <laughs> oh, right. Okay. So, yeah. yeah. So it's one of those things where you're spending low... I, I mean, this is, this is for any writer. Yes. Yeah. Um, this is one of the things that I've learned on the MA. Because I thought as soon as you publish a book, I know you're not going to make a load of money, but yeah. at least you'll be able to publish the rest of your book. Right. It just doesn't work that way. No. Where you publish one, yeah. and the next one's like starting over again yeah, completely. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, you will get the, the occasionally you will get a two book deal or a three book deal occasionally, mm-hmm. uh, but they're not necessarily a great idea. There are disadvantages to them as well. Uh, and at the moment, I don't have a. I've had a two book deal in the past, but at the moment, I don't have any kind of deal for this new novel. And whereas, obviously, the teaching job, I have weekly deadlines. Yes. Uh, and paychecks. And paychecks. And the Nightjar, Nightjar Press, I have a um, twice-yearly schedule, so there's always something to be getting on with for yeah. that. There's always work to be getting on with for Salt. And, yes, there's always work to be getting on with in terms of my own writing, whether it's working on the novel or working on new stories. But um, because there's no one saying... I mean, there are a few close friends um, saying, when I want to read a new novel, but... Um, there isn't a publisher. Crucially, there isn't a publisher saying, "Where's your new novel? We we need it. We need it yesterday." I mean, that's incredible. When you th- especially being a sequel, you would think, "Well, it's it's a no-brainer." It's it's only it's not really a sequel because um, it will stand alone. It's a sequel mm. only in that when when it's published, and then when the third one is published, that I also have in mind to do, the three of them could look really nice standing on a shelf together, and mm. obviously they would have the same thing going on with the titles, first novel, second album, and then I won't tell you what the third one is because... I could probably guess, but I'm not going <laughs> to... Okay, we'll talk about that afterwards. Yeah, okay. Um, I just imagine them together, and I get very excited mm. thinking about them together. Yeah. Um, and yes, I do get excited enough to make me get on and write it, but I just don't have the time. If I When I go home tonight... Probably what I should do is do some work on the novel, but probably what I'll actually do is work on one of the other things. Mm-hmm. Well, I know I'll do some work on editing uh, Alison Moore's new novel, mm-hmm. so I'll do, and, and another new novel as well. So I'll I'll be uh, I'll work on that when I get home tonight because yeah. that's got to be done by yeah. a certain date. So if being called second album is that tapping into your music geekery? Yeah, 
yes. background. Yeah, I need to be careful with that because... Uh, but I, someone who read what I've done so far, which didn't take long because it's only 2,000 words, 2,000 words over... Uh, 4,000 words, actually, over two years. Uh, I do need to speed up, I think. Mm. Seven, seven... No, what was it called? First novel took seven years. Right. Write, uh, as well as being my seventh novel. Right. Um, and I'm really hoping that second album won't take as long. In fact, I'm determined that it won't. Yeah. And yes, it does tap into my interest, in particular, in ambient music and experimental music, drone right. music. Um, and uh, I, because I always use that kind of music, uh, I always listen to that kind of music when I'm writing, whether I'm writing at home at my desk or, or on a train or in a bar or whatever mm. I will be listening to that music to shut everything else out yeah um, and I tend to be I tend to listen to the same piece over and over um, so I listen to two two pieces in particular when writing first novel and when writing second album I'm trying just to write it while listening to just one album right which is an album by William Bozinski called Water Music mm. um and it's great. Um, yeah. Uh, and it helps me, I think, anyway, I, I, don't know. I mean, I'm sure I could write without it, but mm-hmm. it, I'd like to think that it helps me get in the zone. And Do you think it kind of dictates where it goes? Like, if you listen to a different song, your novel would change. Well, I don't know if that would really be the case, but it might be. Mm. Um, and I kind of don't want to tempt fate. But then, having yeah. said that, it's not as if I really know where the novel is going. Yeah. Um, so it's a bit of superstition then as well, yes, isn't it? Yes, there's yeah. a lot of superstition involved. Mm. Um, and I'm not really a planner. I'm more the kind of person who sits there and writes. I mean, I have a vague idea yep. of where it's going, um, but I don't really know how I'm going to get there. If you write that way, do you find that you'll get three quarters of the way through the book and come up with a great idea, and then you have to rewrite almost the entire book again? because That has happened. Yeah. yeah, that's happened. Um, and... That's that's obviously a lot easier these days with uh, computers and mm. word processing, etc. Than than when I started writing novels. I remember when I was writing my first novel, which was called Counterparts. If I wanted to rewrite, I really wanted it to be called Seventh Novel. <laughs> <laughs> it should have been. I should have. Yeah. I should have known. I should have known. Yeah. Um, but you know, so I would have a pay. The, the manuscript for Counterparts was was crinkly with tipex. Mm. Um, and if I wanted to rewrite a paragraph, I, my feeling was that I, if I wanted to, if I didn't want to have to retype the whole page, mm-hmm. but just redo that paragraph, I had to yeah. redo it to the same length. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, God. Wow. <laughs> uh, That's not the right way to go about it. No, that isn't the right way to go about it. And as a re- you know, when I look back at counterparts, I think, oh, my God, it, is, it commits all the sins that I tell you and other students not to mm-hmm. do these days yeah. when I'm teaching writing. Um, it's amazing it ever got published. Yeah. But um, it must have had something. As, as you know, I can see now that it has a lot of things wrong with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wouldn't... I'm not one of those writers who would want to withdraw it from... Probably, I mean, it's not like anyone's clamouring to yeah. issue an edition of it, but... Mm-hmm. If it got to the point where someone wanted to do a run of all, of all my old novels in, in matching jackets... Oh, the I, dream. The dream. <laughs> yeah. How happy I would be. Yeah. But I wouldn't be one of... There are writers who say, OK, but you're not doing my first one. Um, 
Philip Pullman doesn't want his first novel um, reissued. He won't even talk about it. Um, John Banville isn't keen to have his first novel reissued. Um, but it's really good. Joe Stretch, my colleague Joe, who works here at MMU, recommended Night Spawn to me, uh, John Banville's first novel, and it is brilliant. Yeah. Slightly overwritten, slightly yeah. a young person's novel, but uh, I really loved it. Would you want your, and I've saved this question for the last, and oh, you led lovely. right into it, just in case it's offensive. Okay. Uh, would you want them to reproduce the one that you won the Bad Sex Award for? Do you wear that as a badge of honour? Yes, care? I do. do you? I do, because, um, well, I don't know a badge of honour, but I, I'm an award-winning writer. Yeah. I can say I've not only won the British Fantasy Award mm. uh, three times, but also the Bad Sex Prize, or mm-hmm. the Bad Sex in Fiction Award, or whatever, it, whatever yeah. it's officially called. Um, what I always say is I had the most amazing party thrown for me that night and met... Malcolm McLaren and, and Brilliant. Ben Ockrey and a host of other really nice and interesting people who otherwise I would probably never have met. Mm-hmm. And um, it was just great fun. Mm. Um, it's given, I think anyway, in the spirit of fun... Um, I mean, I've noticed, I don't know, some years you think you get the impression that maybe there's not as much love in it or affection and maybe I'm imagining that there was any love and affection in it the year mm. I won it but I I enjoyed it so much it was great yeah. and I'd be quite happy for that novel to be reissued mm-hmm. um, and I wouldn't make any changes to the uh, offending <laughs> yeah. passage because I always maintained that it was it was deliberately um, comic yes um, I, I've read it and I, I didn't yeah. think it was that bad yeah. um, I I, especially when you consider what Morrissey's Precisely. is. I've actually written it down. Yeah, okay. Is um, this the bulbous salutation? Yes. Uh, and I, I said, I've got like two rules for this uh, podcast. One, that it features people from the Northwest. And two, no readings. Right. But I think in this case, <laughs> it's worth I just want to read it and I want to see, hear what you think about right, it. Right, okay. <laughs> and see if it's worthy. And right. do you think yours still counts or you still should have won? Yeah. At this, Eliza and Ezra rolled together into one giggling snowball, a full-figured copulation, screaming and shouting as they playfully bit and pulled at each other in a dangerous and clamorous roller coaster coil of sexually violent rotation with Eliza's breath, breasts barrel-rolled across Ezra's howling mouth and the pain frenzy of his bulbous salutation, extenuating his excitement as it whacked and smacked, that's my favorite bit, its way into every muscle of Eliza's body, no, no, this is my favorite bit. <laughs> Into every every muscle of Eliza's body, except for the otherwise central zone. <laughs> the otherwise central yeah. zone. <laughs> I think yours is positively well, boring compared to that. <laughs> well, definitely. More, m- mine was much more low-key. Yeah. Um, I uh, Compared to a sewing machine. Yeah, the sewing machine. It makes perfect sense. And, yeah. uh, and the submarine. And a police siren. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, yeah. and the submarine. Don't forget the submarine. Oh, yeah. The big white submarine. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think uh, I'm not. The thing is, I'm not a fan of the Smiths. I am the only person in my age group from yeah. Manchester who is not a fan of the Smiths. Mm. And uh, apart from, I think they did one absolutely brilliant song, which is "How Soon Is Now." Mm-hmm. Brilliant track, and uh, but that's mainly down to the guitar on it. Yeah. Um, 
You just like that beginning bit. The well, no, not so much. It's the it's the. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I love that. I think it's amazing. But then that's Johnny. How can you not like? There's a light that never goes out. Because it's awful. Oh because my god! All, all those songs are terrible. They're, they're, there's something so horribly self-pitying and uh, yeah. And there's there's I'm not good enough at um, talking about songwriting and, and melody and lyrics to to deconstruct the Smiths mm-hmm. songs and, and explain why I don't like them. Um, I wish I was because then my saying that I don't like them would, would have more weight to it. Perhaps. Mm-hmm. As it is, it just, I just come across... It's more of a it's gut. It's it. Yeah, but, but, I, but I do think there's something. There's, it's almost like there's a... <laughs> I've got no problem really with the, the music, but then it's the way that the, the melody is sort of almost dropped on top of it mm-hmm. and the singing just goes on and on and on mm-hmm. um, uh, Joe Stretch is, is, has taught songwriting and he would he'd be much better to and he probably loves the Smiths he, well he must do I think everyone does <laughs> except you <laughs> yes <laughs> he's, he's not from my age group I hasten yeah. to yeah. but um, uh, yeah How Soon Is Now is a great track mm-hmm. I'm not a big fan of their work otherwise I was really, really unhappy when Morrissey convinced Penguin to let him publish his so-called autobiography straight into Penguin Classics. Yeah. I thought that was just outrageous. Yeah. And then, and then when they published his first novel, um, uh, what's it called? You think they would have learned of the Lost? Is yeah. It? Um, I... I I didn't buy it. I mm-hmm. sat in Waterstones and I read as much of it as I felt That's... I had time for. Yeah. And it is just terrible. Yeah. I think I'm still willing to forgive him because... Well, not for his writing. His writing is awful. But I... And I'd even concede that the songwriting, the lyrics themselves, might not be... I mean, they're, they're whiny, let's be honest. Mm-hmm. But I think... The lyrics and the voice and the guitar together, yeah. it's, it's a, a rare thing for it to be as, as good as that. Well, uh, you see, I'm quite prepared to admit, to not, not admit, I'm quite prepared to allow the possibility that one day I'll be listening to some other Smiths tracks and I'll think, I was wrong. Mm. Because I do actually really like finding out that I've been wrong about something all mm-hmm. along and uh, realising that I really like something. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think now. Well, if you don't like There Is A Light That Never Goes Out, well, then I, will, I don't think you'll find another Smith song. I will make a special effort to listen to that one yeah. um, and see if I can see if I can put it alongside How Soon Is Now. I, 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 can, I, I can totally understand why you choose, and I, I don't know how much of this is going to stay in the podcast, mm. but I can understand why you choose that one, because that's very different from the rest of their, ah, right. their, okay. their song. Like that's, for me, that's almost a rock song. Okay. I don't know, maybe I've just... Do you think because of that guitar? Yes. Is that the difference? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think it's completely different. And I, and I think that's the one that sucks everybody into this. That was the yeah. one, especially, I think, I think there's a big split between, like, North America and Europe. Whereas I think North America, that's our favourite song. Okay. And in Europe, that's their least favourite oh, really? song. Yeah. Oh, um, gosh. I mean, it was... If you ask anybody back home what's their favourite Smith song, yeah. how soon is now? How right. soon is now? Every time. Um, it's used in beer commercials. It's used in all kinds of stuff. And, but but I even it's not just that guitar riff. It's I even really really like um, the the vocal line in mm-hmm. it. Um, it's great as soon as I hear it. And mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, partly it's because I know that in a moment I'll hear that guitar riff. Mm-hmm. Um, 
which works every time. Mm-hmm. But also, I just think, yeah, the vocal line's really good. But I am going to listen to... What's the one you said? Uh, there is a light that never goes light out. never goes out. Okay. Yeah, I'll tell you what. I'm, I'll make it my mission to find one that you like. Okay. I, to be honest, I'll find... Well, if, like I say, if you don't like that one, there's no hope for you, okay. frankly. <laughs> well, should I go straight to that? Or? Maybe not. Let me do a, a playlist. I'll do a playlist. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, that's, that's all I need. Okay. Um, that's great. Thank you very much. Thank you. Pleasure. French City Acrobatics. Let's see if that brings it up. And I know you're listening to this going, fuck Robinson's parkour. That's it. This it is the most low stakes parkour I've ever seen in my life. So Nick Royal ticked all the boxes really that I want in a guest. Editor, publisher, tutor, and writer. So if you want to be on this podcast, you know, you got to raise your game, man. Um, a lot more than these parkour people. You know what? I am taking a photo of these guys, as you can see how ridiculous it is. They're all, they're dressed up in the gear as well, like hipsters, like they're doing something amazing. The, I am not shitting you. These park benches are a foot and a half off the ground, and they're jumping over them like they're jumping the Eiffel Tower. But anyway, he was really interesting and a lot of fun and very welcoming and he's an incredibly supportive guy so uh, I'm you know ridiculously being a guy who's not got a, an undergraduate degree I'm, the novelty of actually going to school even though I'm 41 um, has well and truly not worn off and uh, well I mean take for this podcast for instance this is for my project for my MA and it's not even we're not even meant to start this until March, uh, and it's December, So, and I'm almost finished. <laughs> so yeah, taking it a bit seriously, I understand. That is, This is going to be my last podcast uh, until next year. I've recorded one with Benjamin Judge and David Hartley. That one's going to come out in January. Um, they are two seasoned performers, and Ben was a... Uh, a judge for the Not the Booker Prize, and David Hartley has started a night in Stratford called the Speakeasy, which is another literary night. Yeah, that was the parkour guy. He actually did a proper cheer. Anyway, <laughs> he just did a proper cheer for a guy jumping over one of these benches. Um, yeah, and then I've, I'm going to meet up with Graham Shimon and Craig Pay next week and talk to them about the Manchester Speculative Writing Group. Uh, It's a very large writing group and one that you can join if you want and has a very good uh, record of getting people published. So listen out for that. I'm going to get out of here before these parkour guys hit me with a granola bar or something. I'll see you in January. Bye.